0: We had to essentially retool the entire network uh, where we built our points of presence in little neighborhood pops. So we would consolidate all these little in-building pops into neighborhood pops that would serve the local area. Um, And that cost us a lot of money, which we really didn't have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you had to do it. Well, we had to do it because the business was just melting. (laughs)
1: My guest today founded a company in 1988 and is still running it 31 years later. Believe it or not, Beanfield has been providing internet access since before Bell & Rogers. I'll let you hear the full story from Dan himself on episode 12 of the Toronto Tech Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dan Armstrong, founder and CEO of Beanfield MetroConnect, which has been around for 31 years in Toronto now. Yes. Dan, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So you founded this company. At the time, it was a radical idea that we were going to run fiber through the city. Yes. But take us through sort of the very early days. How did Beanfield get off the ground? Sure.
0: Well, I mean, back then, the internet really didn't exist. Um, back then, most businesses still had you know, mainframes and mini computers in their office. And they were uh, just starting to explore the idea of using personal computers for business. I mean, they were pretty much the realm of the nerds back then. Um, and they weren't that useful unless they were networked together, of course. So I sort of started Beanfield networking personal computers together, which is a radical idea at the time. It seems kind of ridiculous now that there was a whole business just doing that. But the cabling and everything else was very difficult back then. Um But as I did that, I sort of found that a fee-for-service business that was entirely dependent on me doing stuff was very difficult to scale. So I had this crazy idea that I wanted to connect my customers to my office so that I could remotely work on many of them at the same time. Mm. And that was sort of just around when the Internet was being born. And so then I started selling them this new radical internet thing that was coming down the pipe. Um, we actually registered a separate company because we didn't know if it was going to be a fad or not. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, turns out it wasn't a fad at all. <laughs> <laughs> and we quickly merged it back into the main company. We abandoned the sort of consulting side of the business and just pushed forward with internet access as our primary wow. product. So. Some companies, when they're
1: getting started, they'll eventually figure out what they want to do and pivot and focus on that. But it sounds like Beanfield, from the very beginning, was about Internet service.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it was about connecting.
1: Connecting. Before the term Internet yes. was widespread. Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, an, an Internet is technically a network of networks. And That's the, right. The big eye Internet is the worldwide <laughs> global Internet. So I guess we were sort of, we were a pioneering little colony before the world yeah. c- connected together. So uh, it's easy to say these days that
1: it's Beanfield versus some very big ISPs, like Rogers and Bell. Uh, but back then, there, I guess there wasn't that competition because this was a brand new industry.
0: Yeah, well, the big companies weren't doing it. so <laughs> They weren't there yet. They weren't there yet. Um, we were, I mean, of course, we, we had to connect many times to our customers over phone lines. So right. th- the phone company was involved to some degree, but it was very, very slow. And one of the things that we did really early on is we started sort of in in clandestine fashion much of the time, running cables in back alleys and through parks and through trees to get to our customers because using phone lines back then was just way too slow.
1: Right. So you started off taking advantage of the phone line network that was already there, but it was not, and even back then, it was not as mature as it is today.
0: Oh, no, it was a disaster back then. <laughs>
1: So you guys, it sounds like, very quickly realized that laying your own infrastructure was the way you had to go.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, I mean, later on in the late 90s, when all the phone companies did finally catch on and join the party, um, they created their wholesale DSL model. That's Um, right. And so all of our competitors, quote-unquote, at the time, went that direction, and they started selling wholesale. And, I mean, we realized that we... There's no way we could build a competitive advantage if we had the phone company in between us and our customer.
1: That's right. So, so you guys realized you had no choice but to do infrastructure? Yes. I see. How long, tell me about those early years. How long were you reselling or using the phone lines before you guys crunched the numbers and figured that out?
0: Um, I mean, we were always, we um, probably moved down to Liberty Village about 25 years ago. Um, so it would have been in, like, 94. Yeah, 94, 95. And we started running cables wherever we could through. There was a lot of old steam tunnels down there. because uh, Steam of, tunnels? Yeah. The, um, w- the building that our office is in, the old Toronto Carpet Factory building, um, had a giant steam engine in it which ran all of the uh, knitting machines that made carpet Hmm. And they actually sold steam from their boiler to a lot of the neighboring buildings.
1: Oh, interesting. So there was actually pipe infrastructure that was there from this old use.
0: Yes. Wow. Yes. That was still there in 94. All the tu- Many of the tunnels were there. Some of them were a little bit dilapidated, but they were still passable. Okay. So we ran a lot of cables through those tunnels. Um, and we also did some things, like we broke into um, some of the Bell copper cross connect boxes and we would put jumpers in between two buildings (laughs) so that we could so that you guys could use it
1: yeah that i mean it makes sense if the infrastructure is there those phone lines are there and they're not being used for anything
0: right so we were doing that sort of i call it the clandestine copper days (laughs) (laughs) uh by hook or by crook for uh, uh you know five or six years until we realized you know what we better actually figure out how to do this properly
1: yeah and lay your own infrastructure. Yes. That's interesting. So your immediate, your first customers were just people who were physically accessible by tunnel or by infrastructure that was already there.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, <clears throat> I mean, right around the year 2000, 2001, when the entire industry sort of melted down. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, we, I mean, we were way too stupid to borrow money. So we didn't have any debt. And when a lot of all these upstarts went bankrupt we were the only ones left standing Mm. so in the span of a few months we had an enormous influx of customers oh wow uh because they were just left high and dry by these bankrupt upstart internet companies and we just started hooking them up as fast as we could and then their older equipment started showing up on ebay
1: you're the people who had gone bankrupt
0: yeah right so we bought you know huge expensive core routers for you know, pennies on the dollar and we, you know, built a really dynamite little network Wow, for very little cost.
1: So being able to survive that crash really
0: accelerated your business. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, this is a weird thing to say in business, but I often look forward to economic downturns because it really, it clears away a lot of the junk. <laughs> right. And the noise, the noise and people that are, you know, competent and pure are sort of able to flourish.
1: Wow. Those are really good words. And, uh, I, I feel like there's not a ton of companies who have that outlook.
0: No, <laughs> there <laughs> probably isn't. Cause a lot of companies are based on, you know, lever- levering debt and during an economic downturn, when interest rates drop, they're kind of screwed, but yeah. we find quite the opposite feeling.
1: Right. But it sounds like, um, your not taking on debt at the time might have also slowed you down from growing as fast as you
0: could have. Most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, my partner, Chris Amendola, he was very averse to bringing on a lot of debt. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that in many ways kept us in check. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would have loved to have, you know, mortgaged everything, maxed out every credit card imaginable to Mm. make it much bigger, much faster. But, you know, I was kept in check if we didn't do that. Yeah,
1: and he must have had some good outlook because you guys are still around 30 years later, which is a oppressive feat for a company that was your size for so long.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs>
1: yeah. So I want to talk a bit about the initial founding. So I know you'd had this idea for a little while of connecting together, um, and you found Chris Amendola. How did you guys meet each other? How did you guys get connected and realize that you could partner up and do this?
0: Sure. Um, at the time, I was writing an order processing system for a courier company. So the system that, you okay. know, they took orders and dispatched drivers and whatnot. So you
1: were writing a computer system to do that. This yes. would
0: have been in the eighty in like 87? Well, probably would have been, been early 90s. Early 90s. Early 90s. Uh, up in Brampton. Okay. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, he, I mean, the computing was very primitive at the time, so it was possible for one person to write a whole ERP system right. for a company. <laughs> um, anyway, he worked in the warehouse. And, uh, you know, we just sort of, I would be working there at weird hours of the night and on the weekends. And we just got to chatting and we became friends. And uh, I asked him if he wanted to come on board and do cabling for us cause that was the one thing that I thought I could not, I could outsource of my own, mm. of myself. So he came on board and he was helping doing cabling and I was sort of doing all the IT stuff. But we uh, found ourselves really struggling because again, fee for service business is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, we were in a pretty dire straits. The, we couldn't pay our bills, couldn't pay our rent. And couldn't we had a couple of you know, administrative employees that we could barely afford to pay, so uh, we had a sort of a moment where we said, you know what, look, let's get rid of this office, get rid of all these people. We're gonna move downtown to Liberty Village, restart the company, focus purely on internet, and I'll make you a partner, and that's what happened.
1: Right, so I didn't, I didn't know that you were already taking on a business, and then Chris Amendola came on afterwards. Yes. And Beanfield really took off when you guys partnered.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I was, you know, toiling away for about five, five years before I met Chris.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, you guys had a, a very tasteful little um, marketing video where you talked about the founders of the company. It was like a one-minute long... Uh, oh, like I know a, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we
0: had a, a video production company approach us that wanted to do a sort of a promo reel for their business and yeah. that was the idea they came up with and they hired actors to be yeah. us when we were young and I'm like that's super weird <laughs> but it actually turned out pretty funny
1: it did uh, there was a nice little dance bit in the middle of it too to show you know the timeline the time lapse of you guys setting up infrastructure
0: yeah. it's very very silly yeah it was very <laughs> silly i certainly looked a lot nerdier <laughs> in reality <laughs> back then than the actors did
1: the decision to you know, pack up shop, move to Liberty Village. I can't imagine that was made lightly. What were what were the people involved and what were the decisions that had to be made when that happened?
0: Um, well, we had, I think, two or three employees at the time. We had an accountant and we had, I had a programmer trying to help me and uh, I think just sort of a break-fix technician. And I mean, we just could, we couldn't make our payroll, we couldn't pay our rent, couldn't pay for our phone lines. I mean, we were really- we were just getting by. Yeah, we. I mean, and then it, it all sort of came crashing down when everyone starts to get cranky. So we had to fire you know, or let go our three employees and say, look, I'm sorry, we can't afford to pay you. Tell our landlord, I'm sorry, we can't afford to pay the rent. And you know, they let us off the hook for the lease, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. And that's when we moved down, took a tiny, tiny little space in Liberty Village mm. and uh, started again.
1: When you did that first move, because your your office today in the carpet factory is gorgeous, but I imagine when you came down there, that was not the space you moved into. No.
0: But you were in that building or you were in that vicinity? No, we were in that building. Oh, wow. Uh, we moved into, well, we asked the landlord if they had any very inexpensive space, And they showed us a little room in the basement, which had, (laughs) (laughs) it was the sprinkler control room. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So it was basically a tiny little closet with all of the fire sprinkler plumbing in it. And they said, look, you can have this for, I don't even remember the rent was, it wasn't very much. And we're like, okay, (laughs) this is now home. (laughs) Wow. Humble beginnings. Yeah. So it that same room is now used to store all of the paint (laughs) (laughs) in the complex. Uh, but yeah, so once we, once we got rolling, we, we moved into a slightly wow. larger space.
1: On your 30th anniversary, did you and Chris go down and like take a toast in that, in that first room?
0: You know what? We should have. <laughs> I <laughs> never even thought about that. We really should have.
1: It's interesting that, that it's the same building that you moved into and also that you still own that same space. Well, I, it sounds like it's not the most desirable real estate today. <laughs> no, it's,
0: it's hot. I mean, in, this, in the winter when the steam boilers are on, it's hot as can be it's quite something
1: yeah it's also interesting to think about and this is just a tangent but it's also interesting to think about steam as like you know a, a resource back then that was like coveted oh. and hard to come by it sounds like
0: well it was energy it was energy i mean that was before i mean toronto's power back then i'm sure wasn't all that reliable mm-hmm. so you know in transmitting it long i mean that was just after the you know, Niagara Falls Power Company set up in Niagara Falls. And so, you know, having your own local steam power to power your plant was the only way to really do it.
1: A business could be stable that way because the steam engine, if it was local and well-maintained, would be more reliable than the electricity grid.
0: Yeah, for sure. Certainly back then, around the 18, late 1800s. Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about Niagara Falls as really how long it's been around.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated. I mean, it's really fascinating to think that in the region that we live in was where, you know, really the birth of electricity with, you know, commercial power production really happened in Niagara Falls. Wow. I mean, that's where the Edison Company first set up most of their commercial power equipment. and
1: Was right here. Yeah.
0: I mean, Buffalo was one of the first cities to get commercial electric power because it's so close to Niagara Falls. To
1: Niagara Falls. That's right. Holy crap.
0: Buffalo was a,
1: you know, it's so interesting to think about the evolution of cities over time. Like, Toronto wasn't absolutely anything back then. No. And Buffalo and, you know, Chicago and these cities were metropolises. They were vibrant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's too, I mean, I think when they were bringing Canada together and they decided that Montreal was going to be our cosmopolitan city. I mean, I love Montreal. I even own a condo there, but. I mean, they've consistently screwed themselves in terms of economic <laughs> viability, which I think held all of Canada back for quite a while until I think people finally said, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> Enough's enough. we we'll do it over here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so founded in 1988, here we are 30, 31 years later. Um, you guys now own the largest fiber, independent fiber network in Toronto. Uh, I believe in Ontario.
0: Um, probably. I mean, there's not much outside of Toronto, That's to right. be honest. That's <laughs> right
1: yeah and you guys have grown tremendously in the last five years yes tell me what it's been like to you know triple or quadruple your employees to grow so quickly over the last couple of years when you've had you know 20 years of history behind
0: you um it's i mean it's extremely challenging for me to let go of things (laughs) what do you mean well i mean i'm used to doing everything myself i mean i used Uh. to do all the cabling splicing log into all the routers configure everything you know, when you start to hire people to do things for you, it's sort of difficult to train yourself not to be a micromanager and to empower them to make decisions and let them spread their wings and fly. And I mean, that's sort of the first stage of growth. Mm -hmm. Um, The second stage of growth is to empower people to manage people that are actually doing the work. So when you have layers of management and that's been really tough for me to get my mind around and I find myself now, I mean, more, all all I do all day is, you know, talk to people, support people, and, you know, pick up poopy diapers from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> Things that go
1: totally wrong. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it happens. There's no business that can avoid that.
0: Yeah, it's it's just a very different shift to, you know, go from doing to managing. Yeah.
1: What's that been like for you personally? Like, what have you had to tackle or undertake that was not even on your radar when you were doing everything? Um,
0: I mean, it's very hard to create the same level of accountability in others that you would have for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I've, you know, had to work really hard to sort of, I know this sounds a bit weird, but create a religion almost that people sort of can buy into and they see the vision that I want the company to put forth the values, and I mean, basically, our, our vision is to screw the big guys. And <laughs> that's right. And stick it, it to Bell and Rogers. Stick it to the man. Yeah. And that's a very easy thing for people to get behind. Um, so now, we're, yeah. you know, we're basically all fighting a war together. And that's uh, right. Bell and Rogers
1: is one of has been the most one of the most complained about uh, companies to the CRTC.
0: They're horrible to deal with.
1: Yeah. From experience, I, I personally will never, never again do anything with Bell, no matter what the price says it is <laughs> like
0: never. <laughs> well, yeah, I often say that they're, you know, if you have the two of them, you have to choose between drinking gasoline or oven cleaner. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people share that
1: sentiment. So it's easy to get behind this, this movement, this momentum that you guys have. Right.
0: So I think that's, That's a relatively easy thing to do as a manager because we have this war. What I'm thinking, though, in the future, I mean, we might eventually become, uh, you know, large enough where we might be the man. So Mm. how do we change that? Right. How do you make sure you don't fall into that same thing that Bell and Rogers did? Right. Well, that's Uh. what I spend a lot of time thinking about these days. I mean, it's great when we're all in fighting mode, but... What if we're not all of a sudden, how do I get everyone to believe in the cause so i'm i mean i'm doing a lot of work around that right now i'm trying to write down our values like I want to always run a very ethical business that supports the community you know is as environmentally friendly as possible you know is very good to the employees because I mean at the end of the day we're only we're all only on this earth for a short period of time, and you That's know right. we may as well enjoy our lives while we're here and you know, if, if you need to enjoy where you work and you need to enjoy your life, and I think that's really important. And then I don't want to squeeze every dime out of every employee um, because they, you know, they're people too.
1: That's right. It's it's those are really good words, and it's very refreshing to hear somebody relate to all their employees as people with passions and things outside of work.
0: Yeah. Well, they are. Everyone's yeah. got a life. And we try and support you know, people in as many ways as we possibly can.
1: Yeah. And I know you guys have been doing that in many community endeavors, supporting charities and doing what you guys can to minimize your impact on the environment yes. as you're working. Can you tell me about some of the initiatives that you guys have taken on?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, one of the first things that we did uh, was sort of by accident. We were digging up a sidewalk in Liberty Village to lay some conduit. And I don't know if you remember, <laughs> right after the developers finished building in Liberty Village, they did a terrible job of landscaping the sidewalks.
1: No, all I don't remember. But anyway,
0: all the trees were dead and, you know, the dogs peed on them so the trees couldn't take hold and the sod was dead and it just looked mm. like crap. So I, when we dig up the street, we have to put a temporary fix back, and then the city comes along later and does a permanent fix. But there's occurred to me that there's nothing to say that our temporary fix can't be better than,
1: than what, what the city will do
0: than what the city will do. So what we did is we um, put down we hired an arborist to figure out what species of trees would actually flourish in that area. You know, we put down paving stones, replaced the soil with, you know, proper draining soil, planted a bunch of about six or eight trees, and put paving stones down and made a great little boulevard in the middle of Liberty Village. And everyone was like, what the heck is this thing? Wow. <laughs> and uh, it was really well received, and people loved it. And now all of the condominiums have sort of taken a design cue from what we did, and they've started re-landscaping the front of their condominiums so that to it match. matches.
1: Wow. You guys have really set the set the bar, and it sounds like people followed. Yeah, it's that was, simple.
0: Yeah, it was really I was really really proud of that, and the trees are now enormous <laughs> that we planted those many wow. years ago.
1: See, we got to put that on a marketing video. Yes,
0: <laughs> I know, right?
1: That's a good story.
0: Um, I mean, we do. Uh, I mean, we do many things. I mean, one of the things we, that I really love is we just hooked up the uh, new Artscape building down on the waterfront. Oh yeah, I know that. I was just there a week ago, actually.
1: Oh, there um, you go.
0: It's a, it's a gorgeous space. So
1: that's way out east, I believe, by Lower, Lower Simcoe. Uh,
0: no, further. Lower Jarvis. Lower Jarvis. Around there, yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a fantastic space. And, I mean, they do a lot of great work. And um, one of the things that, because of our sponsorship, they gave us four free memberships. Oh, wow. Which we sort which of... Which are not cheap.
1: <laughs> They're quite a penny.
0: Yeah, they, they are. And uh, we ran a little contest internally for employees... Uh, to pitch an idea why they would want to, how they could use the membership. And um, we have one of our, our sales guys, he's a relatively junior sales guy, made a great pitch that he wanted to use the recording facilities there. And he's been making some really fantastic music um, I mean, I, I'm sorry to say, we're probably going to lose him one day because his music career is going to take <laughs> off and he's going to become famous. I mean, it, the best way to lose employees
1: is that they're flourishing elsewhere. Yeah, so of course. That's got to make you feel good.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would love nothing more for him, his career to take off. I mean, as much as we would hate to lose him, of course. Yeah,
1: what's his name? We can give him a bit of a shout out. Sure, his name is Brandon. Do you know what his stage name is or what his uh, music? label is? I don't know. I should
0: okay. I should probably find out.
1: Brandon, if you're listening, we will we're gonna come find you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> so I wanna talk a little bit about the space you're in now. You're on the fourth floor of the Toronto Carpet Factory, which is a building of I believe over well over hundred years old. Oh yeah. Um, what you've done with that space is absolutely gorgeous. From the art installations, the graffiti at the back and the abundance of natural sunlight coming in. It's really not like any other office I've seen here. Um, Tell me about what inspired you and what what you guys really wanted from that space when you set out to design
0: it. Sure. Um, I mean, when we moved into the building, it was kind of a dungeon. All the hallways just had drywall and steel doors, so there was no light in any of the hallways. Um, you didn't really know who was in any of the offices. It was a very sort of narrow corridor as well, and it just didn't feel very nice. It felt like an industrial building. Mm-hmm. Um, so because we wanted to create a sense of openness and welcoming to the world, we decided we were going to rip down all of that drywall and make most of our exterior walls glass so that you know it would look visible and approachable to the outside world. And when we did that, the owners of the building were just totally blown away by how much it brightened up the hallways. Mm-hmm. And now <laughs> they've gone through floor by floor and forced all the corner offices to rip out their drywall and put glass up on the corners so it brightens up the whole building.
1: Oh, wow. That's another place where you guys have set an initiative that other people followed.
0: Yeah, mm. I'm really happy with it. Uh, we use a lot of glass in the office because it just sort of yeah. creates a sense of transparency, literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm, I'm a huge fan. And uh, it's beautiful that even your internal rooms, since they're all glass and there's so much light coming in from the outside, you see sunlight everywhere in the office.
0: Yes. We, uh, Yeah, know, it's really important that we do that. We also put our customer service team right in the center of the operation. That's right. Uh, we put it in the center of the office because it's the heart of the business because the customers are really sort of our mm-hmm. our blood and the heart is the customer service team. So we really cherish that. Location. So you really do put
1: customers at the center of your business and have literally put them, the support people, in the middle. Yes,
0: that's yeah. quite intentional. Yeah, some of the some of the customer support people uh, and uh, some of the nerds actually find some of the sunlight a bit offensive. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't please all of you the know, people all of the time. Yeah, so I,
1: I oddly get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, it's you know I'm sure they've come around and it's it, you know it's it just makes you happier. It's made me happier throughout the day <laughs> if I get a dose of sunlight
0: versus if I don't. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we do catch people trying to put blankets up on the windows and like, what are you doing? <laughs> Come on. Do you know how hard we've worked for all this Suddenly,
1: <laughs> So today you guys are arguably best known for providing fiber internet straight to, the, straight to customers right at their homes. Okay. Um, but this is not all you guys do. You've got home phone as well as TV services and many more. Yes. Can you speak to the services you guys offer and why you guys decided to get into those markets?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, we always start... When we started, we were a commercial b2b service provider we only served commercial customers um, our primary product of course in that space was internet access um, but we quickly started realizing that um, private line services where businesses want to connect two locations together was a big business as well so we created a whole suite of private line services which is still a huge part of our business today mm-hmm. um, in the business world we also do what we call colocation, which is You know, it's just we run a data center and customers can bring their servers and co-locate them in our data center. Um, That market right now is becoming quite saturated in Toronto. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of new data centers here. Yeah. Which it's been very good from a consumer of data centers perspective. Um, The prices are going down. The services are going
0: up. Yeah. It's a tough business because you've got to dump a ton of money in to build a facility so you're losing money losing money losing money you're making money for you know a tiny little bit of time and then it's full <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got to build another one yeah so that's a very tough business to be in especially as prices are falling because you're not able to access the financing to build new ones so we've sort of just we haven't mm. left the business we're just leaving what we have in place and not really that's growing true. it uh well, yes we have a hosted business phone platform that we're a a CLEC, which is just a technical term for a CRTC term for a competitive local exchange carrier. So we're officially a phone company. Hmm. Um, our business phone product has been really taking off. It uh, it's actually still a very high margin business, surprisingly. Just business phones? Yeah, okay. I mean it's probably the least sexy thing we do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it's a great high margin product. And we've sort of moved into sort of some niche areas of uh, voice. We sell it like a platform for uh, financial trading desks. You know, those really just
1: just voice.
0: Yeah. You know, those really high strung guys that are trading. and They're on three phones and (laughs) they've got 19 monitors in front of them. So we sell those phone systems as well. That's a really nice high margin product. Interesting. Um, and it was very much by accident that we ended up in the residential business, which is a fairly recent innovation.
1: How, how recently is it? As I wasn't able to see the start date on that when I was doing my research.
0: Um, waterfront Toronto was formed as a tri-level government organization many years ago to sort of uh, redevelop our waterfront. And they put an RFP out because they wanted to make it a high-tech community. And I think they went to Cisco to help them craft the RFP. And, I mean, I don't want to get in trouble for anything I say here, but <laughs> Cisco made this ludicrous <laughs> idea of what an intelligent community network should be that was very Cisco-centric, of mm, course. Of course. As is their... That's what they do. That is what they do. They've they been d- in business a long time. <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of their sales strategy is involves government relations. Yeah. I always, just as a tangent, I always get angry when I see an RFP put out by a government agency asking for Cisco hardware. Like, Shouldn't Which an RFP like, be asking you to spec the hardware? That's right.
1: An RFP should be, here's what we need to have happen, and here's our constraints. Right. <laughs> and the so, constraints should not be a Cisco devices at the middle of it. I, yeah, I know. They're... It's yeah. infuriating. So. They're good at that. I mean, that's, there's a reason why that happens. They're, they're very good at the sales tactics and the relationship management and convincing people that these really are the best devices
0: for the best price. Yep, they certainly are. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, tangent. There's the tangent. So anyway, they, they put this RFP out, um, and I think nobody bid on it. <laughs> so they have you know, recrafted it two or three times, and still nobody bid on it. Oh, wow. Uh, the third time... A company that wasn't really set up for it bid on it and went bankrupt. Okay. (laughs) So they put it out a fifth time and we finally said, you know what? (laughs) We would rather just, we're going to put a bid in for this thing. Um, They had sweetened it so much by the fifth time this thing went out because I think they were getting frustrated that no one was bidding on it. uh, That it was such a sweetheart deal. uh, We put together a bang up bid and we won it. Um, and we were sort of half, not, I wouldn't say we were joking when we put a bid in, but we weren't really expecting to win it. And we did. So we had to scramble and build a whole residential business very quickly. Wow. And that was the onset of your home phone business. Yep. Home phone. So we had to build a television service. We had to build, you know, fiber to the home internet service and home phone.
1: Oh, that was all part of the bid. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's how you guys got into residential anything. Yes. Ah. Interesting. How how long were you guys in pure commercial before this this bid showed up and pushed you guys into residential?
0: Um, I think residential is all is fairly recent. I would say twenty thirteen.
1: Okay. Is so around
0: when we started in it? Six,
1: seven ish years.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh wow. I you know, I, I thought you guys had been around much longer than that. And certainly when I see, when I ask people about your company and I look at your services, you seem like an incredibly mature company that's been doing this for, you know, twenty years to the home. And your your policies seem very flushed out, you know, for the services that you offer and why you offer them and not something else.
0: Well, I, I mean in a way being a little late to the party let us not do what everyone else did. <laughs>
1: mm, let you avoid some mistakes, learn from other people's mistakes.
0: Yes. I mean the thing that we latched onto very quickly is that Consumers hate that bullshit that the big guys play with pricing. Yes. You (laughs) don't get the best price unless you're threatening to leave. And, you know, if you just call them up and pay the rack rate, you're paying an enormous premium. And as soon as you go to leave, they're like, oh, no, 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 come back, come back. We'll cut the price in half. Yeah. And, I mean, you shouldn't have to fight like that to get the correct price for the product. And, you know, just knowing that your neighbor might be paying less than you is really, it just makes you feel taken advantage of, mm-hmm. and on all those specials for new customers only. I mean, yeah.
1: This price for the first six months of a two-year contract.
0: Oh, yeah. All that bullshit. So we decided that we're not going to do that. Our price is our price. We're going to set it fairly. It's going to be the amount of money we need to make to deliver the quality service that we want to mm-hmm. make, and everyone pays the same price.
1: And I know that um, one of the questions you keep getting over and over is why do you guys not offer bundles between your internet and your home phone and your TV services? And I know that's something that Chris has been very adamant about, that bundles are not the way to go.
0: Well, its I mean, it, bundles really are a deceptive way to sell you something you don't need. <laughs> I mean, I think bundles were created in, in essence by Coca-Cola when they approached McDonald's and said, hey, why don't you bundle fries and a Coke in with their Big Mac for a slight discount because we want Mm -hmm. to sell more Coca-Cola. And that just sort of got lodged in consumers' minds as a way to get a discount. But I mean, it it certainly added many inches to the waistlines of many people.
1: (laughs) And especially when the individual services will go up, go up and up and up. And then it's like, well, but if I take it away, I lose my bundle 10%
0: or whatever it is. Right. It doesn't, that's not fair. I mean, people don't, if you don't need TV, don't take TV. If you want both, <laughs> buy both, and we'll give you a great price even if you're buying one or the other or both. It's just, we don't, I don't like that deceptive pricing. Yeah,
1: and it really should be that simple. Yeah.
0: It, it is actually that simple, <laughs> but... Sorry, it should be with every
1: company, that simple. Right. Yeah. So I agree. It's another way that, to me, I find you guys very refreshing as a company to not engage in those... Games—it's almost a game.
0: It is a game. Uh, you'd be surprised, though, the number of people that actually expect it, and they call us up and say, "Oh, you know, so and so's offering me five dollars less than you." I'm like, "Okay, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. You know, when the, when the price goes back up, come on, come on back." Yeah. <laughs> and they're sort of taken aback much of the time, but I mean, there will always be the price-conscious consumer out there they will all just float around. And you know, if, if the only thing we can do is compress all of our competitors into the bottom of the market and they could just keep fighting over the price-conscious consumers, I think we'll have done a great job. Yeah,
1: that would be a perfect, uh, a perfect goal. Yes. Yeah. So I want to go a bit further back in time. Um, when you first founded your first company before Beanfield, um, in many ways, you were just a kid. This I was, was uh, well over 30 years ago. Yes, I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> you were literally a kid. I was literally a kid. Yeah. Tell me, what was that like, you know, kind of getting into this world? There's a ton of unknowns, but you went in anyways. Tell, take me through what it was like in, there, in your
0: early days. Um, I mean, I've always sort of known what I wanted to do. I mean, I always wanted to run a company. And, I, you know, I always loved technology and connecting. I mean, when I was a very young child sort of my hobby and passion was you know telephones (laughs) and CB radios which were the communication tools of the day so I mean I just sort of fell naturally into communications technology I think and connecting computers together was a, a natural outgrowth especially at the time and I as couple that with always wanting to run a company and it just sort of seemed natural so, I mean, I remember I, you know, waltzed into the office to get my PST number, and um, they told me that I had to be 18. I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so you were really charging straight into this. There was
1: not a lot of doubt because you knew this is what you wanted.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and I, you know, everyone, whenever I walked into a supplier or, you know, an off, a government office like that, they would look at me and say, you want what? Get out of here, kid. Yeah. <laughs> but I would just dig my heels in and make a stink and force their hand. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden I'm not a kid anymore. <laughs> yeah. And and you've been running something successful for a hell of a long time. Yeah. yeah. I still sort of feel <laughs> like a kid in many ways. But, you know, I have gray hair and can't pay, stay up past 10 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was very difficult walking into a lot of places as a young kid and not being taken seriously. But, you know, I learned <laughs> and grew. I once managed to land a very, very small contract that required me to go down to Scotiabank in Scotia Plaza, and not being terribly savvy, I showed up in shorts and a t-shirt.
1: <laughs> not knowing what you were getting into. Not
0: knowing what I was getting into, and you don't really walk into a bank right. office in shorts and a t-shirt, and I got, you know, chastised for that, but I c- quickly learned <laughs> what to do and what not to do. And
1: Yeah, well, learn by doing, some argue, is the best way to go. <laughs> yes. And then we get interesting stories like this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. yes. What was it like to, you know, the Internet and the technology was a very new and unknown sort of industry back then. What was it like to be not taken seriously? Um,
0: well, it I wouldn't say the inter When we started, you know, full bore into the Internet business, it was like a gold rush. Everyone, it almost seemed within a year, just wanted to get connected to the Internet because they'd heard about it and they realized it was a great place to get great porn <laughs> <laughs> another industry made successful by that yes yeah. absolutely the, i mean the, it was very much the underpinning of the internet um, and you know it you know wasn't very user friendly in the early days you know you know dialing up and you know your right. news groups and you know uu encoded images and putting them together and i mean websites were atrociously primitive Mm-hmm. and it seemed really crazy that this thing was taking off like it was, but it did.
1: Hmm. What Give me a sense of time here. In what year was this gold rush, so to speak, happening?
0: Um, I would say it was just in the late half of the 90s. So right, a couple years leading up to the dot-com crash. Yes. Well, it just, there was this huge crescendo. It was just nerd stuff, nerd stuff, nerd stuff, huge crescendo, and then, I mean, I guess all the investors rushed in overvalued everything and then yeah. once they realized they had overvalued a lot of companies that had absolutely no product everything crashed yeah which you know the market corrects the market yeah. corrects yes it's really good.
1: so how many competitors give me a sense of what was it like you versus how many companies setting up internet in those early days
0: uh there was probably there was hundreds of them hundreds hundreds of them dial-up people. There was people, uh, upstarts from the U.S. coming in. Um, there was huge, they had, and all of them had huge financing behind them. And there was a lot of little local players, regional players, neighborhood level players, you know, wireless people, fiber people. It was just, a, it was chaos.
1: Oh, wow. So there really is this massive influx of companies in just a couple of years.
0: Yes. And they all got wiped off the face of the earth in one giant tidal wave.
1: Wow. What was it like when you and Chris sat back and realized, like, you might be the companies that
0: make it out of this and
1: nobody else?
0: Uh, I don't think we realized it at the time. It's, It's hard to see the forest for the trees when you're in the middle of it. That's right. We were just slogging away, and, you know, it didn't really dawn on us what had happened until probably many years later. Wow. Yeah, you guys were nose down and just working away. Yeah, pretty much.
1: That's perfect and it's and it's paid off. I mean, the company's very vibrant and growing as as we said.
0: Yeah, I think we're we're doing well. I mean, it, the next phase is going to be I mean, we have to carefully plan that, but I mean, we're probably going to have to do some acquisitions to, you know, fill out our our uh, skill sets a little bit.
1: Is there new industries you're moving into, or what what kind of acquisitions do you need to make? What uh, skill sets?
0: Um, well, we would like to in, you know expand into other cities, for sure. Uh, we have a little. We're starting to build a little bit of fiber in Montreal. Okay. Um, yes, the big city of Canada. Yes. Yeah. Um, but we don't have you know any staff there yet. I mean, we're very sensitive to the fact that it does operate as a unique culture, and you need a local French speaking staff. On the ground. Yes. Very important. It is. So we're, we're sensitive to that and we're sort of slowly going to try and build that up. So, and that might happen by acquisition. We'll see. Interesting.
1: Does that mean that you're at all slowing down your expansion here in Toronto?
0: Oh, no. We're, we want to, if anything, we want to speed that up.
1: Okay. So you're focusing here and also trying to set up a foothold in Montreal. Yes, absolutely. Perfect. We've talked about the phone service and how it started commercial and moved into residential. How did the TV service get started and what was that like?
0: Oh boy, the television industry is absolutely nuts. Um, I mean, we had to build a television service as part of our Waterfront Toronto contract. Uh, We had no idea what we're doing. So we went down to the cable TV show in Chicago and just started out walking around saying, how do we do this? <laughs> how do yeah. we do this? And they all sort of were looking at us like we had five heads because <laughs> everyone... Because
1: who joins, who joins the TV industry? Right? Who
0: Exactly. I mean, everyone that's in the TV industry are these old, old, old companies that have been doing it since the dawning of time. And there was no such thing as an upstart television company back then. And we had a tough time finding the technology that we needed, but we managed to cobble together an l- ecosystem of products to Get a TV service off the ground, and it uh, it didn't work that well. <laughs> <laughs> and we had, I mean, we had no idea what the bee's nest we were wading into with all of the content providers, and all the licensing and bundling that they want you to do, and packaging and rights. It was just nuts. It was probably the hardest thing we've ever done. Wow, <laughs> was pull all that together. And our TV service as it exists today is not perfect. Um, I mean, it's a great linear television service. It's got, you know, all the channels you would want. Um, the PVR is a bit buggy. And the video on demand store is a bit thin. Um, we're actually just, I mean, as the industry's evolved quite a bit since we were there. And right. now there's a lot of off-the-shelf, monolithic software packages for operators to deliver TV service that are simple and not too expensive. So we've recently signed a contract with the company and we're in the middle of implementing a brand new TV service.
1: Oh, Perfect, so customers can look forward to getting a better experience when that's all set
0: up. Yeah, it'll have all the bells and whistles like you know, multi-screen, you know, um, tablet version, app version, out of home, so that'll be nice. Although then we're gonna have to wade into the rights issue again because not all of the broadcasters allow out-of-home viewing on their channels right not
1: everybody lets me watch game of thrones on my on my phone i have to be at home you're saying yes and i mean that's
0: further complicated by the fact that many of the rights holders are in fact our competitors
1: yes so i gotta imagine that's a weird line to walk from their perspective to you know have their own streaming service but also facilitate other people like you guys broadcasting it out. It's not really broadcasting, but streaming it out to your customers.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the CRTC forces their hands to do that, but they make it as difficult as possible.
1: (laughs) Uh, Speaking of the CRTC, I mean, they control a lot in this space and their decisions really, really matter and affect businesses. One of the things they did was forcing... Uh, companies to allow third parties to use their network infrastructure. Yes, and this allows companies like Tech Savvy to take hold and offer to their customers. When that happened, you guys had the option now to use existing network infrastructure, but it seems like you decided ultimately not to. Yes, what was what was that decision process like, and why did you ultimately decide not to? Uh,
0: well, we wanted we have a gr- had a great competitive advantage because we owned our own infrastructure. And we've thought about it. You know, if we started using their network, we no longer have that competitive advantage. So, we I mean, I always liken it to the car rental counter at an airport. You have 10 companies that have identical booths in the same place, and they have an identical product. There's absolutely no way for them to dis- differentiate themselves from one another. And we didn't want to be that. So we said, you know what? Look, all our competitors can do that. The tech savvies of the world do very well in that space. But that's mm-hmm. not what we do.
1: Wow. So it was a decision not to expand sort of into a parallel market almost.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, having said that, we are now, we find ourselves almost by accident doing a lot of <laughs> that what we call off-net uh, service. Um, there's been a few companies in of these resellers in Toronto that have gone out of business. Yeah. And there's just a ton of customers that really are looking for a high-quality, business-grade service in areas we don't serve directly. And uh, you know we've been dragged into it kicking and screaming, even though we don't love it, but it, it's just sort of happening. I mean, we've actually got hundreds of off-net <laughs> customers, yeah. whether we like it or not. It's hard, it's hard to turn down
1: demand of the customer sometimes. If it's something that you can fulfill, it sounds like.
0: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's sitting right there. I mean, why would we not take it? If the customer's begging us for the service, we have a way to get to them. Okay.
1: Yeah. Have you guys thought about um, rolling your own infrastructure instead or in addition to that network?
0: Oftentimes, if we do find a cluster of customers uh, that we're serving with off-net infrastructure, we would build into that area. Oh, so, wow. so it's a great tool to see where clusters of business form.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a perfect way to sort of test the market to see if it's ready for, if it's viable for another an expansion of your network.
0: Yeah, it's a great way of looking at it. We, I mean, we've got to be very careful. We don't want to ruin our brand because, I mean, if something goes wrong with these third party circuits, there's nothing we could do other than phone them up and say, hey, it's broken. That's right. And the customer's screaming at us and we're screaming at the underlying provider and it feels very helpless.
1: Yeah, that's been very frustrating for me personally where I had a service through Tech Savvy that took advantage of uh, another company's network. We're not going to name names, <laughs> but um, they did something that effectively destroyed our, the quality of our line. And technically they were not allowed to do that. And um, we had no choice but to change service providers uh, or change technology, so we went from one to the other. Luckily, TechSavvy offered both in, a, in our area, but it was very frustrating that we had perfect service for years, and then overnight, you know, something went wrong, and we had to jump ship.
0: Yeah, well, it's, you're, if you're not in control of that infrastructure, that's, that's, that's what, happens. what happens.
1: Now, before you got started... You've always wanted to have a business yes. and you've always wanted to work in technology. You got started with um,
0: CM radios, you said. Oh, so CB radios. CB radios. That was when I was a kid. What is a CB radio? Wow, that's a, a great <laughs> question. Um, a CB radio is um, it's a two-way radio that is on a, you know, has a 40 channels of public frequencies and there was actually quite a community of people that you know, owned CB radios back in the '70s and '80s, and we would just talk to each other. And you know, I, uh, there, you know, there was little clubs that started. So I actually belonged to the Trans Canada Radio CB Radio Club, which met at the O'Connor Bolorama on Saturday
1: mornings. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> so you you had this little community of, of like-minded individuals too, even when you were very young.
0: Oh yeah, and we would. I mean, I, I had. They all had CB radios in their cars but I was way too young to drive, so I actually had one on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> so I would be cruising around with all this gear and batteries and an antenna on my bike, chattering away to all wow. of these people that were sort of became friends. That's quite an image. <laughs> I love that.
1: <laughs> so I take it these were very short-range
0: radios. Yeah, I mean, you could... I mean, you could illegally boost the power of them, so you could... I mean, we could talk to anyone anywhere in Toronto, pretty much. Wow. So I had a pretty good community from Etobicoke all the way out to Scarborough. Wow. How, how many people were involved? How big was this community? Um, Your best guess. Oh, there was many hundreds of people. I mean, this is how people talked to each other just casually before the Internet existed. Right. And they became pretty close friends. I mean, I remember all of them very well. One of the uh, my closest friend in that community was an old lady named Isabel who I'm sure is deceased by now. But uh, she was retired, and she actually crocheted me a beautiful blanket that she sat in front of her CB radio making for me, and she gave it to me one day on my birthday. and oh, I, wow. It
1: was beautiful. You know, the, the connections that technology enables, that's always what the goal of technology was, right, is to put people together. Yes. And this was the original meetup.com. Yeah, exactly. We had a exactly. CB radio. The thing that I loved about back then, and I feel it happens less now, is, you know, anybody who's on this network gets connected. There's no discrimination of age or gender or race. It's like if you were in this community, you could form these friendships. And, you know, similarly, some of my closest friends were people well outside my age range or or my community otherwise. But, you know, we become the best of friends just chatting
0: over a service. Well, it's funny you should say that because I found that, too. I found, I mean, because, you know, if you're behind a computer or a phone or a CB radio, no one knows who you are, how old you are, or anything. And, you know, people, I became friends with many people that I would never normally associate with. I mean, an 8-year-old and a 40-year-old generally don't become friends. That's right. (laughs) But, you know, with technology, it happens. Yeah, it's an amazing equalizer. I, I, I mean, later on when... You know, BBSs became sort of the precursor to dial-up internet. Same thing. You know, I you know had friends that were in Scarborough that were <clears throat> adults. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was great. Forgive my naive
1: question, if it may, but what's a, what's a BBS? Oh, what's a BBS?
0: So a BBS is when, I mean, again, predating the internet. You have a computer with storage, and you have a dial-up modem connected to it. Oh, it's a message board. Basically a message yeah. board. You phone it up and you can download files and you can leave messages on the message forums.
1: That's right. If I I think you hosted a dial-up message board at some point.
0: Yeah, I had I had a two-line
1: system. Oh, wow.
0: You're
1: going to have two people on simultaneously. Almost enough for instant instant chat. Well, you, you
0: could chat back and forth between the two lines. That was one of the first people in the city to oh, do this. Oh, wow. I mean, in those in those early days that was in unheard of It was know? absolutely unheard of yeah, that was like 1985 Wow-ish and it was it was certainly interesting that was a, that was a whole other community <laughs> <laughs> unto itself
1: so to to fill in our listeners, you would punch in a phone number on your computer, you'd connect to effectively you could think of it as one website or one forum. yeah
0: that's a good way of thinking about it.
1: And that was all, that was all there was, and people would just connect and disconnect and leave messages in this sort of commons common area yes and uh tell me what was the culture of that like and what was what got you into that in the first place
0: Uh, i mean it was a natural logical extension of what i've you know been doing all my life so i mean it was uh, you know you get a computer and you're like this thing isn't very interesting because yeah
1: (laughs) 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 on its own okay you can do some colors you can write some stuff down and save it for later but we play hangman. Right. You it's know, boring thing as hell.
0: So you, you know, you buy a modem and you connect to somebody's BBS and you're like, oh, this is kind of cool. Now I can leave messages in these subject areas and talk to people. Oh, like I can download some files. That's kind of cool. And then you figure out, oh, I could actually run one of these things myself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that community grew and, you know, there was many dozens of them in Toronto. People would publish lists of the BBSs and their phone numbers.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I guess on BBSs. Yeah. Okay, so you could discover more once you found one.
0: Right. I guess that's the precursor of, of DNS. The... <laughs> when you think about <laughs> it, <laughs> it's a very manual.
1: Oh, that's a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> and that was the beginning of the web approach to you know, communication. Right. You connect to one node that would tell you about other nodes, and off you went.
0: Right. I mean, that very quickly became the precursor to dial up internet because those message boards eventually got connected to, you know, internet message boards, and that was sort of the birth of news groups. Mm.
1: The birth of forums and, yeah, message groups. Yes. And even some of them still exist to this day and are still much the same. It's, you know, messages and it's file sharing, and that's it.
0: Yeah, no, they're still very active. I mean, there's a lot of nasty things that go
1: on in them. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting to me that um, I once heard it said in a video, this is from the very early 2000s, where um, someone was from academia was talking about, you know, the internet is this brand new thing. Everybody's anonymous. You're just whatever screen name you want to be. And you would think that that would lead to a lot of malice and people being vulgar. But actually, it was a very supportive and positive community. And, you know, anything you wanted to learn about, you could ask and people would just help you. Yes. Um, And that's very different once the masses sort of got hold of this.
0: Well, that's actually one of the things that causes me great pain is it was a wonderful community back then. It was very supportive. It was very open and it it was a source of truth Mm -hmm. in a way that was almost transcended democracy. It was really powerful. Um, And in recent years, I think that's come crashing down in a really upsetting way. I mean, it's become now a a way to propagate mistruth.
1: Right. It's, it's really the opposite of democracy In, in many ways. It's, Sometimes countries trying to hurt other countries' democracy.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really upsetting for me to see that. and I, I mean, I f- almost feel like I p- was contributed to building this thing that's now sort of been, in many ways, weaponized.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, you know, this is a technology that has propelled humanity to new leaps and bounds. And the fact that some people, a minority of people, want to take this and use it for something not great, I mean... It's a more a people problem than a technology problem.
0: Oh, I, I mean, for sure, entirely. It, it isn't <laughs> entirely. It's, it's it's this. I mean, it's populism. <laughs> it's the electronic part of populism.
1: Yeah. Oh man, I kind of want to just talk more about that because <laughs> the, the the beginnings of the internet and the growth of it and the changes as it grew were just so interesting to me. And in many ways, I relate it to any technology that we get. Uh, when the printing press became a thing. People were suddenly reading newspapers en masse, and you'd get you know a community of people sitting at a cafe drinking coffee, not talking to each other. Right. They would just read the newspaper, and you know it was a phase, and well, imagine, we got over that.
0: Imagine how that propelled literacy forward. Absolutely, it
1: you know think of how many people were had access to reading now that just didn't before. Before everything was handwritten and hand copied. Yeah, um, and at the same time, you know that was a crisis of jobs. Um, There were people saying, we're going to automate away so many people's jobs, whose whose role it is to copy from one to another as cleanly and precisely as possible. (laughs) You know, it's funny to me, because if you look at these grand scheme of things, if you look at 100 years instead of five years of human history, we see these patterns playing themselves over and over
0: well, we certainly do. I mean, we've seen them so many times in, you know, computing. I mean, the paper industry thought computing was going to kill them. Yeah. <laughs> did, did quite and the opposite. We make more paper now than we ever made in history. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's shifted. We do more shipping and so cardboard and stuff now. Right. But absolutely. We do have more paper products today than we've ever had in human history.
0: Right, yeah, no. I mean, the paper industry was lobbying <laughs> against computing for that reason. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, and we. St- I mean, the crisis of jobs now. People are worried about artificial intelligence taking their jobs,
1: and it's it's the same, but it's different. You, you know, AI has the ability to accelerate so much faster than any previous technology we've had, but at the same time, it's a similar kind of problem where some people's jobs will go away. And usually it's the kind of jobs that, you know, aren't that fulfilling and satisfying anyways. Right. If I was copying paper to paper all day, every day, I'd lose my mind.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I don't, nothing against bank tellers, but I can't imagine it's a very interesting job. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've had automated bank
1: tellers, ABMs or ATM, sorry, whatever it is, automated bank machines, Yes. ABMs.
0: ATMs, automated ATMs. teller machines.
1: Oh, thank <laughs> you. Automated teller machines. Yeah, for, for many years. And if that picks up, we will never eliminate the need for s- solving the complex requirements that sometimes come up. Sure. It will never be all machines. And, and I think that's the important thing to keep in mind, is that we're really automating away the, the dull, the boring. You know, but the things that require a human, a human element, that truly require, those jobs will not go away.
0: I don't think so. I hope not. I mean, <laughs> I mean, when you see some of the things that the U.S. military is working on, that starts to get into the realm of really yeah. scary.
1: But at the same time, if we're automating away carrying heavy things, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's okay. Yeah, I, if we're automating, but if we're automating decision making, I don't think that's a good path to follow.
0: Yes, I agree. Yeah, we're um, <clears throat> part of the waterfront involves the uh, sidewalk labs project that google yes. is proposing which is you know extremely exciting and terrifying at the same time but some of the ideas that they're putting forth there are i mean they're great ideas i mean why, if you're building roads why not build an underground tunnel system for delivering packages
1: right or <laughs> carrying away refuse
0: yes like what a great idea take all those trucks off the road
1: mm-hmm. so i i agree with you i think they have some incredibly good ideas And I'm also very scared with the premise of, you know, they're going to set up cameras at every corner. And it's not an opt-in. It's if you're there, you're being surveilled. And they claim to be using that for good purposes. But I, I don't, no one's given clear answers to what those good purposes are.
0: Well, I don't think anyone can answer yeah. that question. Uh,
1: yes, I'm skeptical that there are good purposes. Right.
0: Well, and I, I mean, even if the current administration within Google is has the best of intentions, and I'm sure they do, you know, what happens in 50 years when those people, those mm-hmm. relatively idealistic people have moved on?
1: That's right. I mean, you know, G- Google stopped, stopped their saying of don't be evil. You know, why would they take that away as an official company stamp. That's that's an odd move. (laughs) So yeah, things change over time. And you know, new management, who knows what's gonna happen.
0: Right. I mean the founders are very idealistic and they're still involved and that's great. But I just worry what happens when, you know, when they're dead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which is another good thing that I'm very glad to hear you say that you really care about the what Beanfield is doing here and you wanna leave the right kind of legacy.
0: Oh absolutely. I mean I'm I'm not going to have children in my lifetime, I don't think. Uh, but Beanfield is the legacy that I want to leave behind on planet Earth.
1: Oh. I didn't know that, that you, um, you don't have any kids. No. <laughs> oh. What is your outside-of-work life like? Because that's another thing that there's nothing on the in- that I could find about.
0: Um, oh, there isn't much to it. I mean, my, <laughs> most of my life. Still it, on the CBD radio? No. <laughs> no. I don't even... I'd love to turn one on just to see if there's anyone...
1: Sorry, I said I said CBD, but that's not the word. CB radio. CB
0: radio. Yeah, yeah I'd love to turn one on just to see if there's anyone still around, but I doubt it. Mm-hmm. I wonder,
1: I wonder if there's radio, if you can find one. Like I know the Hack Lab had a CB radio, uh, but this was at their old location in Kensington Market, so I'm I'm sure there's a community somewhere out there.
0: I'm sure there's got to be. Yeah. I mean, probably in the southern US somewhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I'm sure in Toronto. I'm, I know I
0: could like, find a community. Yeah. Well, maybe I should find buy one on eBay, throw up an antenna, and just see if there's anyone yeah. around still. But anyway, yeah. No, my life outside of uh, Beanfield is... I mean, I, I mean, I'm working whether I'm in the office or not. Most of the time, I put my entire life focus into it. Um, you know, I enjoy going to great restaurants, drinking good wine. But there's not much, <laughs> much else to it.
1: Perfect. Well, it's, it's made a big difference on your employees, you know, having the business as a primary focus for you. And one of the things I've noticed is you've quite a few employees who've been there, you know, six, seven, eight years, which is, especially in the tech world, a really long time. Why do you think that is?
0: Uh, well, I mean, we work really hard to make it a great place to work. I mean, we have a lot of people. We call them lifers (laughs) that have been there for most of their most, if not all, of their working career. Uh, You know, our turnover is surprisingly low. Um, I mean, we we've tried really hard to make it a great place to work. We've recently just got about a year ago a a company dog. Oh wow! Named Beans. (laughs) (laughs) He's a little golden. He's a golden retriever. He's very cute. Um, And so he just you know roams around the office all day trying to extort belly tickles from as many mm. people as you possibly can
1: <laughs> that's going to be the best life for a dog
0: <laughs> oh absolutely he's got lots of people willing to pet him um <clears throat> you know and we provide you know a great food and you know a fun place to work so i i think it would be crazy for people to leave some people have but mm-hmm. very few <laughs> i have the pleasure of working with
1: two people who used to work at Beanfield. um we've got absolutely nothing but good things to say I don't even know why they left. They've they've certainly grown um, while well, I've been working with them, but they're, you know, amongst the absolute best people I've ever worked with. Well,
0: That's good um, to hear. I mean, I most people leave. I mean, we, having been a private company without a ton of money, I mean, we can't afford to pay as much as some of the big, um, upstart funded companies can. That's right. So, I mean, often it comes down to money, and I mean, I can't begrudge anyone leaving for that reason. And I'm sorry to see them go, but we just can't pay those kind of salaries that the Amazons of the world can, for example. That's right. And that's fair. And who's to say that, you know,
1: those upstarts when the next recession comes along, don't fall over and and say, you know, we can't, we can't support anybody anymore.
0: Well, this is, this is a thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What, um, were you guys impacted and to what degree during the 2008 recession?
0: Um, actually that was another, we had an, a great uptick during the 2008 recession because we had a lot of competitors cleared out of the way. Was it
1: the exact same story that new companies have been around for a little while, just couldn't, couldn't make it?
0: Yeah. It was a, it wasn't quite as dramatic as the 2000 right. recession, but it was a, a very same dynamics for sure.
1: And was that one much easier for you guys to clear through? Like oh Yeah.
0: We breezed through that one without a problem. It didn't hurt us at all. And what the other thing it does is it puts a lot of really good people back on the job market. So during e- you know economic upturns, it's really hard to find people that are competent. And the, the ones that are want really high salaries that we can't often pay. So that's another big problem in in good times, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> in bad times, we can get a lot more talent. We were actually very worried when. Toronto was bidding on the Amazon HQ2.
1: Oh, because it would be a bit of a brain drain yeah. into Amazon. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think about that as a as a dynamic happening in Toronto, that if they came here.
0: Yeah. Everyone was freaking out that we'd lose all our technology workers.
1: They were, I, I mean, Toronto's not in the running anymore, but uh, that was going to be in the ballpark of like 20,000 people or some obscene number like that.
0: Yeah. I mean that's really hard for us to service that many jobs. Yeah,
1: and I mean even now I see the job market. You know I've got a couple friends looking for work and or just just recently and it's there's a lot of uh, demand.
0: It's a ton of demand. Demand the job market demand in Toronto far outstrips the supply of workers. Yes,
1: that's my perception too. It far far outstrips and finding especially good people that are worth hanging on to.
0: Yeah, well when we get good people we hang on to them like gold
1: as as it's as it's shown like i've i've seen many people working for so many years and even the people who have left have said only good things about the company
0: well that's good to hear maybe they'll come back someday
1: (laughs) i want to talk a little bit about the pan am games oh so toronto hosted this a couple years ago and i know that you guys were heavily involved providing infrastructure for them for all of the pan am games
0: yes Uh, That was one of the clauses in our Waterfront Toronto deal. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, because the Athletes' Village was in what is now the uh, West Donlands development, all those condos were put up by the developers, and they put temporary drywall structures in there, and that became the Athletes' Village. So we had to provide all the internet and television for that. And because we had fiber in all the venues and throughout there, we also were providing all the broadcast backhaul for all the venues to get to the CBC who was carrying the broadcast. And it was quite a time. Was that a lot of new infrastructure
1: and a lot of new, like what were the challenges for you guys? Oh, it was a ton of new infrastructure.
0: And I mean, you're, when you're building for us, a very short event, I don't know what it is about human nature, but you're never ready. <laughs> <laughs> you could plan and plan and plan. But, you know, that last week where we're just like, holy shit, we're not even
1: close. Yeah. It's like, what about this? What about this? What about this?
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we just, it was an all hands on deck situation. Even our accounting staff were out, you know, setting up routers, running cables. Oh, wow. Um it was craziness. Yeah. I mean, at the work, we had to do a lot. A lot of the venues were on the exhibition grounds. Then we had some troubles with the union <laughs> there. Uh,
1: did you guys already have any infrastructure in that area?
0: Yeah, we, we've we been serving the X's internet for many years. So we had some fiber on the grounds, but we had to get two fiber to all the camera positions in all of the venues. Ah, uh, you had to re- have redundancy for all all oh, the games. Oh, yes. And then there was a mini broadcast center inside the X Mm -hmm. where they sort of brought in all of the feeds and then sent them over to the CBC where they packaged up the show for all the international broadcasters.
1: Yeah, and I heard from um, someone who was on the ground that day at the broadcast center that the internet was unbelievable, so good. Oh, that's good to hear. (laughs) So from the outside, it didn't seem like anybody noticed uh, the chaos.
0: Oh, it was chaos. (laughs) Absolute chaos. Yeah, every time a, an event would air, especially on one, if it was being broadcast internationally, we were all just on pins and needles saying, oh my God, don't break, don't break, don't break, don't break. Nobody,
1: <laughs> nobody trip on anything, nobody <laughs> <Don't>
0: touch anything.
1: <laughs> in the aftermath of that, were you guys able to maintain a lot of the infrastructure you had built?
0: Um, all of the permanent infrastructure in the Athletes' Village we now just flipped over to serve the residential buildings that they've become. So that all remained. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the infrastructure was in, you know, set up for tents and temporary trailers and things. So that all had to be ripped out, unfortunately. But. Okay.
1: Uh, all that, all that work and effort. And, but it was a successful event. So I don't know. It must be satisfying to you to ha- see that it all, it all went well.
0: Yeah, it, it went very well. It was a really great learning experience. Um, I mean, so many things I learned. We learned so much through that event. Just the things that these organizers do that I never would have thought about. I mean, they have, you know, media people standing by and we're all briefed on what happens if something goes wrong. And all of a sudden the news crew shows up and starts asking questions. Here's what you say. Here's what you don't say. Here's how you act. Like, oh, you know, Never would have thought about that. So you guys
1: really were prepared from every, from as many angles as possible, no pun intended.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and they, uh, and they, we had to, you know, do drills, like what if there was some sort of terrorist attack or something else? You know, how do we react? What do we say? Where do we go? What infrastructure needs to be kept up? I mean, we had to do a lot of interfacing with the various police forces because the RCMP Mm. had Um, You know, really tight security infrastructure, which we weren't allowed to talk about, of course, but because it was six years, five years ago, we could talk about it now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, they had cameras everywhere and sensors everywhere that we hooked up for them. Sensors?
1: So things like rooms that couldn't be entered in? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, and we have the Toronto Police, RCMP, and the Appeal Regional Police all were involved it was quite a security
1: operation. Yeah. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes that we don't even know about. And you guys are already behind the scenes. And even behind you guys, there was so much more.
0: Oh, there was so much going on. It was really quite amazing to see. I mean, when you see something, like the, we just did the Raptors parade. Oh, yeah. They pulled that together in a matter of days. But the pfft, amount of infrastructure that goes behind the, on behind the scenes to get all the broadcast done and the security done is quite awe inspiring.
1: Yeah, that was an unbelievable event to to see, you know, 2 million people come out in Toronto to just watch a couple of buses go by.
0: You <laughs> oh, know. know. Well, we um, <clears throat> I may get in trouble for saying this, I hope I don't, but Dome Productions, the ones that were carrying the broadcast, came to us to run fiber to all the camera positions along the parade route. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that Ted Rogers and George Cope were in one of the buses, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the
0: camera showing us their image was coming over from our from you guys.
1: <laughs> yeah, they were on stage. Um, they were on stage when the uh, the Raptors came out, and it, I kind of raised an eyebrow. Like, what, you know, what warrants them being up there?
0: Well, they, I mean, they co own Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, so that would be why. Who owns the Raptors? So. Again, the, the content and the delivery mechanism are the same company, which is... They own uh, quite a bit in, in
1: Toronto. They're monoliths here. Yes, they are. They sort of... Uh, maybe this is a bit silly to say, but they kind of remind me of, by and large, from wall the movie wall It's oh, like that company that owns everything, and they're tooted as like, we're the good guys. And right.
0: Who really knows? Well, I mean, you originally started talking about the fact that there's not been a lot of news coverage of us yes. over the years I mean we do have a PR team and you know we would pitch stories to you know BNN and you know various media organizations and they're very often they say look I'm sorry we're owned by Bell we can't really do this and I think to myself you know that's not okay
1: <laughs> yeah it's, it's weird that the, the news kind of gets to select that way based on their ownership like it's a weird dynamic
0: yeah it's well it's not really journalism at that point
1: exactly which is, it's a, you know, that's a bit of a travesty here in Toronto.
0: Yes, it is. I don't think the CRTC should have let these companies vertically integrate, but they did.
1: It is what it is. I don't really know where to go with
0: that, right? Well, there's nothing we can do now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the term dark fiber, because I'd never heard about this as a concept before until I was doing research for this. Can you explain what that is and why it's valuable?
0: Sure. Um, it's, that's sort of just an industry buzzword for when a customer wants to use a piece of fiber between two locations and we don't have any equipment attached to it. So we just give them a, a strand of fiber directly. So it's dark. They light it up.
1: Right. Light it up as literally put data through it. Right. It's a fiber optic cable.
0: Right. So they put their own light on it. Right,
1: and the the premise is you guys will when you're installing cable will lay a bunch of extra cable. Yes. And then whenever a company asks for it, even many years down the road, you'll just say, "Hey, we've got this."
0: Yes, exactly. So we'll I mean we'll put a two hundred and eighty-eight or four hundred and thirty-two strand cable in the ground. I mean, we need you know a few dozen strands for our own use, but if a company wants a strand or two, we'll sell it to them. We can lease it to them on a monthly basis.
1: So you only use like 20% of what you put in the ground?
0: Yes, in most areas. Some areas were a little bit heavier, but depends. I mean, companies that like dark fiber are, you know, banks because they're, you know, doing high-frequency trading and they want to control exactly what's on the cable.
1: That's right, and they they really can't afford uh, any kind of delay, so they want as few hops in between as possible.
0: Yes, so they just want their own glass. They want to do their own thing. Uh, we recently completed a project for sick kids. Um, they're redoing their campus network. So they bought dark fiber between all of the hospital buildings because um, they're doing some pretty high-tech medical imaging sharing, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Um, but it's each just cheaper and easier for them to use their own fiber.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And their, their bandwidth, requ- so I know somebody who, who works there, and their bandwidth requirements are just unbelievable. You know, sometimes they need to, like, do some number crunching, do some, run some algorithms on 100 million images. The demands on the infrastructure for that are incredible. So it's, it makes perfect sense that they would be a consumer of that. Yeah, no,
0: they're, uh, they're
1: doing some pretty cool things over yeah. there, for sure. Um, what, what other sort of big player, what other companies in Toronto are interested in unlit fiber?
0: Um, so it's mostly used by the financial industry, uh, uh, the VFX and screen industries use it a lot too. So we have fiber into many of the movie studios in Toronto. So if they're shooting a movie, they can ship all of the content directly to the VFX house to do mm. the effects in real time.
1: Oh, no kidding.
0: Yeah. Wow. And <clears throat> you know, many VFX houses work on one movie project these days, so they can send these huge files back and forth uh, in basically in real time, so they they're big consumers of dark fiber as well
1: Is it all very big companies like this, or do you have some little players too?
0: I mean there's a lot of really small companies involved in the various screen industries, some really small VFX houses that have really tiny specialties you know there's you know one guy will be really good at hair right. <laughs> <laughs> And that's their, whole, that's their whole business.
1: That's their whole business. Yeah. And so they need that bandwidth to do their part. Yeah. Got it. You guys have laid a ton of infrastructure throughout the city. Interesting to know that it was 208 or 400 strands.
0: Oh, 288 is our standard cable. Sometimes we have 432 strands in a cable. Um, they actually make... Sometimes we use an 864-strand cable.
1: Whoa, when would you need that much uh bandwidth?
0: Um, if you're going into a data center, there tends to be a bit of a, a crunch to get in there. So we would put an eight hundred and sixty-four strand cable that's, in for wow. those.
1: That's an unbelievable. <laughs> How much would you be able to push through
0: if you were to use all all strands? Um I guess I mean that's a Mind teaser, I guess you could have eight hundred and sixty-four times forty times a hundred gigabits. Oh my goodness. Which <laughs> is a lot. <laughs> yeah I don't think Earth uses that much no. <laughs> bandwidth
1: that's why I'm curious like that's a that's a ton of ca- of infrastructure
0: yeah i mean we've the problem with those big cables is if they ever get cut, they take forever to splice
1: so fixing that that cut point
0: yeah we had a recently had a fire in a manhole at church and um Adelaide, and it happened to be a really critical intersection point, and we had about eight big, high-capacity cables that were just burned up. Oh, man. And we had eight splice trucks there for three days. Wow, Uh, trying to fix that. Yeah, working around the clock.
1: Did that cause outages or just slowdowns and you were able to route around the problem?
0: Uh, It caused outages for people in that local area. Uh, The main network, we were able to route around. But it did Hmm. cause outages for people in the local area. Yeah.
1: That's incredible that you can have a critical point fail and obviously the immediate vicinity loses, but you guys have enough infrastructure that you can route around the problem and the rest of your customers don't notice.
0: Yeah, they they didn't. And it was, it was good that the local customers noticed because they could see what was going on. I mean, there's fire trucks and smoke and we had yeah. lights and <laughs> stuff everywhere. And a lot of them were really supportive. They would actually come out and bring our guys coffee and donuts and... Yeah.
1: It's funny how, how humanity ticks up when the Internet's out. Yeah, people are <laughs> <like> rubbing their <laughs> eyes.
0: Whoa, there's a world out here. Yeah, no, they were, for the most part, really nice. I mean, there were some people that were mad at us. but
1: Inevitably, right?
0: Yeah. Well, there was this, not our fiber, but just yesterday, uh, a big 432-strand cable in downtown Manhattan <laughs> caught on fire, and they had to replace three kilometers of fiber right in the middle of Manhattan. Oh, Wow. Can you imagine the chaos with the traffic and the people and trying to get the crews in there?
1: I honestly can't. (laughs) Did they have to do, they probably, hopefully they could do it all underground, but maybe they had to do some digging.
0: I'm sure. I don't know how it worked out, but I imagine there was some swearing. Oh yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of doing some digging, I know some of the, you know, spaces underground were already there and you're able to just run wires or sorry, run fiber optics. But you guys have had to dig yourself, I believe, because you've got quite a few manhole covers that say
0: Beanfield on them. Yes. Um, so we try and lease conduit capacity wherever we can. So Toronto Hydro does make their conduits available if they have spare capacity, but they're not everywhere. So mm. if we need to build to get somewhere that they're not, we will have to lay our own conduit system and put manholes in first places. Um, Toronto Hydro also will not let us put splices in their manholes because they take up too much space. So uh, we have to build a manhole b- beside theirs so we can put our splices in those.
1: Okay, so you can use sort of the channel, the space. Yes. But then the termination point, you've got to make your own.
0: Right. Okay. That was born because in the early 2000s when there was many companies building fiber, they would, Toronto Hydra would find, you know, 16 splice enclosures in their tiny little manhole and they couldn't service the power cables there. So they said, get these things the heck out of our (laughs) manholes. Yeah.
1: At the end of the day, electricity is, is more critical.
0: Yeah, it sure is. And it's dangerous too. Oh yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there was a, a few years ago, there was a big transformer explosion that was underground and like, You know, they're built in these concrete bunkers so that if that happens, it does as little damage as possible. But still, you know, the road was bulged up and trees were pushed over. Like, there is an incredible amount of danger in those things.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, those are 13.8 kilovolt lines. You don't want to be near that when when it decides to arc. Yeah. Um.
1: So as we talked about earlier in community involvement... One of the things you guys did, I believe, last year was take part in the Pride Parade.
0: Yes, we did this year as
1: well. Um, Tell me about why did you guys get into that and what was that like?
0: Uh, Oh, it was a hoot. (laughs) (laughs) Honest to God. Um, I've watched the parade for many years. I love it. And one of our marketing people actually just off the cuff decided to call them up and asked how much it would cost to be in the parade. Mm-hmm. And as an independent business, it actually doesn't cost a lot of money. Oh. So we're like, let's do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. Uh we re uh branded a couple of our pickup trucks, you know, with, yep, the, with the colors car. of the flag. Yeah. yeah. And we uh did I I was the DJ. <laughs> <laughs> Pulled out all of the Diva hits mm-hmm. and uh we had a great time last year. And this year we decided to really do it up and we rented a flatbed truck.
1: Oh wow. <laughs> Had a moving stage then.
0: Yeah. And we did it all up with, uh, you know, railings and trusses and a huge sound system, which was a heck of a lot of fun. We, wow. Yeah, we really had a lot of fun.
1: And that's an interesting point. I understand you DJ on the side as a hobby.
0: Uh, yeah, I used to do it more than I do now. Yeah. I, I mean, as, <laughs> as you get older, it's hard to stay up. All night. <laughs> that, yeah. That culture definitely is an overnight culture. Yes. It's two in the morning minimum. Minimum. <laughs> That's that the headlining DJ comes on at two in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I just can't stay up that late anymore. Yeah. But, you know, something during the day like Pride is a perfect opportunity to, you know, pull out all the old records and have some fun.
1: Yeah. Do what you love doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really enjoy it. Um, tell me about, you guys had an interesting slogan on your t-shirts.
0: Oh, <laughs> yes. Have you seen our manholes? <laughs> uh, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Well, one of our marketing people came up with that. It was perfect. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. The <laughs> other contender for it was, we won't go down on you.
1: <laughs> oh, I didn't see that one.
0: <laughs> that one got axed as a yeah. little bit too vulgar, uh, but the manholes one stuck. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I love that premise. <laughs> so I take it reliability is a prime, prime concern for you guys.
0: Absolutely. That's the, <laughs> the key premise, key pillar of the business is you've got to be reliable. Well, I hope at least a few of those t-shirts were printed. Uh, sadly, we didn't print any of uh, the, we won't go down on you t-shirts. There's, but
1: there's an opportunity there. Next year. <laughs> next year. Um, you guys have grown, you know, you service over 700 commercial buildings now, event venues, uh, events like we talked about. Um, you've got to be really proud of everything you've built here. What are some of the things that you're sort of most proud or you feel most accomplished about?
0: Um, I mean, I'm proud of all of it. Of course. of course. I mean, I'm really proud when I see some of the critical infrastructure that we support. Um, you know, it, I feel it's really important. I feel telecommunications is an important thing for many of the things we talked about earlier. And I'm really proud that we can be there to connect people together. And I think that, I mean, I I still hold, even in this modern day of misinformation, I still hold, you know, very dear that communication creates understanding. And with understanding, we can solve all of the world's problems. Mm -hmm. And if I can be uh, a part of the architect of the network to create that understanding, that's something that I am very proud of.
1: That's powerful. It's all it's all around speaking and listening. And if and if you can enable that, you're making it you're leaving behind a better world. That is exactly what I want to
0: do. I just hope it doesn't get misused.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a lot has changed in the in the 30 years of the company. Tell me about some of the different goals that Beanie Field had, and in hindsight, were they good pursuits or not? It sounds like everything we've talked about so far has been very positive.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've made some mistakes with our architecture uh, in the past. Um, I mean, we originally started, we built, put equipment into every single building that we serviced. And when we had, you know, three or four hundred buildings, it just became ridiculously unwieldy to have all these power supplies and batteries and switches and everything everywhere. I mean, people couldn't even remember where they were. (laughs) <laughs> and often they'd be in like a janitor's closet and the janitor would uh. lean the mop up against it, knock the cable out, and the building would go down. So we had to essentially retool the entire network uh, where we built our points of presence in little neighborhood pops. So we would consolidate all these little in-building pops into neighborhood pops that would serve the local area. Um, and that cost us a lot of money, which we really didn't have. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it, you had to do it. Well, we had to do it because the business was just melting, and it was not scale, not scaling with all these in building pops. So that was a big blunder that mm-hmm. I made. Um, we probably held on to uh, web and email hosting much longer than we should have.
1: <laughs> well, it was a booming industry at the time, but
0: it was yeah. at the time. But then, when all these you know huge mega hosting companies like Two Cows and Wix and what have you came online. The little old us is a useless and it was a very difficult job and I held on to it too long. So anyway, we don't do it anymore.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a couple things learned the hard way, but by and large, a ton
0: of success has come out of this. Yeah. And by and large. By and large. <laughs> uh, are there any others? Uh, I mean, I wish we would have uh, taken on some more debt to grow a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that maybe that's sort of the next era is to look for some investors.
1: Maybe so. Do you guys have a very aggressive growth plan going forward?
0: Yes, I think we're going to, I mean, the next phase is going to involve, you know, hitting the gas and, uh, growing even faster. Right now we build about into about one new condo every two weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, And I want to, you know, double that so we can be doing, banging off a new condo a week. I would love that. Uh,
1: Beanfield is not in my apartment building yet. Uh-oh. I would love for you guys, I've messaged a couple times saying like, please guys, we're getting shafted for internet up here.
0: <laughs> well, if we, <laughs> if we can accelerate our growth plans, we can certainly make that happen. Perfect. I'm on board for that. What I, let's put, uh, put
1: out some social media messages. Yeah, make it happen. Do. <laughs> um, we've, we've been through, yeah, I think we've covered everything that was on my list. I wanted to ask about Expo 86 because I know I'd heard that that was sort of the... It planted the seed of ideas. That. But oh,
0: yeah. wow. Um, I did go to Expo 86, and uh, I'm How, where did you know. hear that?
1: This was, um, it was Chris Amendola speaking to, I believe, a CBC reporter. Oh, really?
0: Quite a few years ago. Um, uh, okay. Maybe that's nothing. No, so it, there was a very interesting installation at Expo 86, which I was a young kid at the time, but what it was was these sort of talking kiosks where it was a television and a camera and an audio system, and they mm. were scattered around the site. And you don't, didn't really know where they were, so you'd walk up to it, and somebody would be on the other end. And you could have a conversation with them. Mm. It was like video conferencing, yeah, yeah. basically, in basically. But before that was a term. Yes. <laughs> and it was just casual. It was just on the street, and you'd walk up to it, and you're like, who are you? Well, I'm so-and-so. Oh, where are you? Well, I'm over here. Oh, that's kind of cool. And yeah. they would change which other ends they were talking to ah. all the time. So people would randomly walk by and have these random conversations with people that were elsewhere on the site. And I just thought this was the coolest thing in the <laughs> world. <laughs> <laughs> so we we tried to find where they all were, and we spent days sort of sleuthing them all down. And I think we finally found them all, but it was a really cool thing. That was Oh, wow. So this was over, this must have been a huge area then. There were quite a few of these. Oh, yeah, it was massive. I mean, it was probably as big as the portlands. So mm-hmm. it was a big area, especially when you're just a little guy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On your bike, you know, going as fast as you can. Yeah, that no, was
0: really cool. I mean, I, once, one day when we're rich and famous and we have many offices, I mean, that is something I'd like to do, is to have a casual, always-on video conference with another location. Mm -hmm. like maybe just in the kitchen or something. So you could say, Hey, how are you? Yeah. In the break room, in the break room with another city. So you can create that connection. So that's something I definitely want to do.
1: Those are, I mean, those are, I don't even know where to go with those. They're so powerful and they're so simple, you know, now, now it's very simple. All you need is video audio and just let people do what they will with it.
0: Yeah. And it doesn't have to be in a formal setting.
1: That's beautiful. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Um, Dan, we've, we've talked about so much today. Um, is there anything else you want to mention, any story, or anything you want to plug? Uh, we've covered pretty much everything, <laughs> more than I ever would have imagined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it's all about. I want to get to know. I like getting into the, the weeds of the history of
0: everything, not just surface level. Yeah, well, I mean, that's amazing. I can't, I hadn't thought about... Isabel from my CB radio days, probably for you know twenty, Isabel, twenty, thirty years. If,
1: if you're here or beyond, we're we're still thinking of you.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: All right. Yeah. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Beanfield, uh, beanfield dot is the place to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Dan, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. I just Thank you, Dan, for being in the podcast. Hearing about people's mindsets surrounding tech in the 1980s and 90s, to me, is fascinating. People used to say, what do normal people want with computers? I really enjoyed this interview, so thanks again for making the time to do it. Today, we close with a song produced by Beanfield's very own Brandon Niles. This is Would You by Devin Tracy. Thank you for listening.
0: I don't want nothing but it If I fell off tomorrow, would you still love me? Went to Cali for some months, would you still trust me? You ain't the only one, trying to be the only one. So many girls that want your spot, you should feel lucky. If I ain't rap, cause I flip burgers at Mickey D's. Would you hesitate to tell your whole that you feelin' me? When I'm in that Lambo, pullin' up. I'ma flex on all the bitches that ain't love me on the bus, real shit. Girl, nine you, straight five. Got the head gang, give me top nine. Screamin' out, honey ain't a thing.